The following presentation is brought to you through the power of science. Shiny. Welcome to Generations Geek, a more or less family-friendly celebration of all that is geeky. I'm science fiction writer Scott Pearson, and along with my daughter... Hello. We are two generations of geek. This is episode 42, The Ape is Back in Town. That's right, King Kong is back and bigger than ever, and we'll talk about how he measures up to previous versions, and how well we think he fits into the new shared kaiju universe with Godzilla. But first, you can find handy links to all our episodes, like episode 7, wherein we discussed the 1933, 1976, and 2005 versions of King Kong, at generationsgeek.com. Now, on with the show. Okay, here we are, 2017, just 12 years after the previous version of King Kong. <laughs> I didn't realize how long ago that was. See, and to me, that, that seems like not long ago, but as far as rebooting goes, but I can understand how it seems like more to you. Well, because I remember, like, being too little to go see it with you. Oh, like, yeah. Like, I remember you going out to the premiere and me being like, I have to stay home. Like, <laughs> <laughs> So, the 1933 movie was set in, you know, basically 1933. Mm -hmm. And then there was the 1976 version, which yeah. was set in 1976. Then the 2005 version went back and was set in the 30s. Yeah. And now we have the 2017 version, which takes place primarily in the 70s, although mm -hmm. it has a fabulous prologue sequence. Yeah. <laughs> the messing around with the time periods is nice. I mean, I think it's... I really... That choice for Vietnam was so interesting and so well done, I think, and really lent itself to this the story that they wrote, I feel like. Yeah. Well, I, I think it was a good decision on their part to modernize the film but and then it was interesting that they didn't take it all the way to the contemporary times and of course this relates to the shared kaiju universe yeah. that they're developing because this is in the same universe as godzilla well and then also just and, taking it to taking it to vietnam as opposed to world war Two, as opposed to world war one you know i felt like vietnam was much more of a Almost a contained conflict in World War One and World War Two were world wars. <laughs> <laughs> well, and and they needed to fit it nicely into the Godzilla universe, and so yeah. the having the World War Two prologue, even though it has nothing to do plot wise with Godzilla, puts it into that time period yeah. where the Godzilla film Especially took place. Later in the movie, when you start yeah. to figure out. And yeah. then flashing it forward to the 1970s gets it more contemporary, but then gives some room in between that and when Godzilla takes place. And so that's kind of interesting how they're dovetailing the films together because then there's going to be another Godzilla movie, but then there's going to be a Godzilla versus King Kong movie. And so we now know that there's going to be this time in between them. And there's a line in the film uh, where the uh, World War II character who's been living on the island says something about Kong hasn't stopped growing yet. 
Yeah. So that was so good. Yeah. So I was like, he's like, he's small. Yeah. So he's got another 30 years of growth before he meets up with Godzilla. All this stuff, you know, ties in. Let's talk a little bit about the growth of Kong through the years. The, the, uh, (laughs) they, they, uh, so in the first film, yeah, he was a pretty big guy. Yeah. And then, but he's not. Uh, th- then in the second film, they made him much bigger. Yeah. Then in Peter Jackson, in Peter Jackson's film, they kind of dialed it back a little bit. I think maybe compared Did to nineteen seventy six. Oh, maybe. But now with this one, since he's eventually got to face up against Godzilla and other kaiju, then they really ramped him up, and now he's like twice as big as he ever was. Really? Or more. Yeah. I wow. Yeah. I actually got the impression that he was maybe a little small. Compared to what? I don't know anymore. <laughs> <laughs> but maybe it was maybe I got um uh brainwashed by them being like, "Oh, he's a baby." And like their <laughs> the shots or I don't know. What was your initial gut reaction to the film? Just the cinematography and visual aspects of it. That was Really, what hit me first? Um, I don't remember the name of the director actually mm-hmm. directed the film, but the way he reminded me a lot of um, Edgar Wright, and the way that he cuts those fast action shots mm. where it's like, like boom and a cut and boom and a cut, just those quick things, especially in the prologue with um, the uh, pseudo sword fight, and he was cutting quickly, and then. Uh, he cuts from the blade to one of Kong's hands, and then one of Kong's hands, and then the shot of Kong pulling himself up next to them. It was crazy. But the entire movie kept up such a strong aesthetic, and um, it was, I mean, like, every... Visually. It seemed like, yeah. It seemed like every shot was just flawless. It, it was very well-crafted from a visual standpoint. Yeah. And from, like, an action standpoint. Yeah. Uh, it, but within the script and the characters, there was some work that needed to be done. But yeah, the well, that's part of what I said when you were like initial thoughts, and it was like my only initial thought was like that's pretty, like because there, <laughs> I mean, there's not there were a few really funny scenes and um everything, but uh, you know, I love Tom Hiddleston and everything, and so I went in wanting to see his performance and uh they didn't really give him anything besides looking pretty and saying some stuff in like a gravelly voice (laughs) let's talk characters and character development because this is where the movie largely falls flat and while you're in the theater watching the action it's easy to get swept up and just enjoy the spectacle but boy there is just nothing to the characters because yeah. i found myself reflecting upon godzilla yeah because in really godzilla, godzilla yeah you have the very well developed you've got the the father character yeah who's tortured and spent his life trying to figure out what happened in the horrible tragedy you've got his semi-estranged son who's been dealing with his kind of crazy dad all his life who's not there for him because he's off trying to chase Mm -hmm. monsters or whatever. 
And then you have the fact that the son now has his own family and is struggling with not being with them because he's in the service. And when things start happening and he's with his father again, then there's a complexity to their relationship that changes and grows as the son starts to realize, wow, my dad isn't crazy. Yeah. So there's all this backstory that they work in there. And part of the reason they do that is because, of course, Godzilla isn't on screen as much mm-hmm. as, say, Kong is in this one. But there's a richness then to those characters. And there is none of that <laughs> in Kong Skull Island. Tom Hiddleston, he's just, you know, brooding, mysterious yeah. special forces yeah. guy. And you Which know is, that because he broods at the camera and says, yeah, I was in special forces. And, and then, then he says, let me list all the ways you're going to die. And then, yeah. And he beats some dudes up playing pool. You know, and, and then there's the hardened war photographer because she's seen the action. Yeah. But you aren't given any details. But she's dad. She's an anti-war photographer. An anti-war Please. photographer. Please. Which, I, I, that was a fun line. It was, no, it was good. But we don't get a scene, like a, a flashback scene that shows her, you know, in battle, or we don't... Photographing the mass graves you she know, talks we, about? Yeah, it's, we just get them telling us, you know, because Hiddleston and her, they meet each other, they tell each other about their own yeah. characters. Yeah, that was definitely a shortcut. <laughs> How in movies, like, they'll have a char- characters will meet each other, like, and immediately tell each other their entire life story and their deepest, darkest secrets right away, <laughs> and which is never something that happens in real life. Yeah. So that was disappointing. And, well, and then to continue the comparison with Godzilla, the uh, wife of the uh, main character, you get glimpses into her, you know, her struggles as well and what she's doing. And so the father, the son, the wife, the, you know, there, there's all sorts of emotional human stuff there that's developed. And almost all the characters in here are very interchangeable. Uh, there's a couple things here and there. There was the one soldier who was trying to write a letter home to his son, Billy. Dear Billy. Dear Billy. Sort of a running thing through the movie. And, and that was a little touching. But, uh, you know, and then there was sort of the comedy relief characters, and those were well done. But but it was still just like, oh, like, funny soldier guy. Yeah, so there like, was... It, al- like, almost too young, like, boy soldier, the dude who wears the headband the whole time. And then there's, like, hardened captain who yeah. then gets, like overcome with revenge. <laughs> so in, in many ways, there were a lot of elements in Kong Skull Island that were by the numbers and with with the kind of stock characters that you're expecting. But for some reason, in spite of that, for me, I found it quite likable and entertaining while I was watching the movie. It was definitely likable and entertaining. While you, after you leave and reflect back on it, you kind of like... When you think about it, you're like... There's not much there. Yeah, it's like you watch this entire movie and then you think about it and you're like, I don't know. Yeah, but it was, but it was a fun, it was a fun spectacle. I mean, the most character development we got was really from the, the crash pilot. Yeah, the character that veteran character actor John C. Riley played, who kind of stole the movie, I thought. Oh, definitely. 
Uh, Sounds like a bird. And do you remember him? He had kind of a scene-stealing uh, small role in Guardians of the Galaxy. He was like the... Yeah, uh, yep. Uh-huh. <laughs> he was one of the guards that was like looking at the Guardians and like going, oh, jeez. <laughs> you get the most depth from him because... So he's the guy you get the, the fun opening prologue in World War II. He and a Japanese fighter pilot... They both crash on this mysterious island. At first, they're keeping up their conflict. They're chasing each other around, trying to kill each other until Kong appears. And they're like, whoa, there are bigger <laughs> bigger things going on here than us. And that's kind of a fun scene. But to me, they really missed something by then not having at least one flashback scene showing... Uh, the two fighter pilots yeah, because together that's so touching. during the years because it is a touching part of the backstory it, that you know because then at first they're enemies and then they're friends and then after you know and it's like all they have is each other really because they're on this island with these yeah. you know natives and um and then he's just gone it's so tragic yeah and and we get everything past the appearance of Kong in the prologue the fact that they became friends the fact that they became incredibly close and had this decades long friendship on the island we only get that in dialogue from the american character yeah and i really would have loved one scene even just one scene or oh montage hmm? montage <laughs> the the actor is able to portray his you know the depth of his feelings for his dead friend Later in the film, as you, you know, when he gets ready to leave and, and he's, you know, sort of essentially has to say goodbye. Uh, that, that, I thought that killed me. And then the scene, the scene at the very end, when he yeah gets, I was. We're getting way out of order me, here, but yeah. Okay, but let me tell you something. <laughs> I was holding back real tears, Okay. I wasn't misting up because, oh, this is so... One I was holding back real tears. Well, and it's interesting that all the truly emotional moments in the film, the most, with the most depth, come from that one character. Yep, that who one is, character. Who, you know, in, in many... Is not really the lead character. Not at all. But he was the one that was given the depth. He was the one that was given the story. And, yeah, and, and him... Facing up to going back to the world after being isolated for 30 years and only just finding out, you know, that we won World War II. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, you, 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 they start playing uh, Vera Lynn singing uh, We'll Meet Again oh, from World man. War II. I'm a sucker for that song. And then when you see his uh, him reuniting with his wife... And with the... Literally, I can't even talk about yeah, it. The son that he knew... Well, he didn't know he had a son, but he knew that his wife was, was pregnant. pregnant. And so he's got a child that he's never seen. That was a very emotionally satisfying arc for that yeah. character. And no one else really got an mm -hmm. arc. Although I do have to... I We have to pay them a really big compliment in that they didn't shoehorn in a useless romance. 
Yes. Because I was waiting. I was waiting for the cringy four scene between Brie Larson and Tom Hiddleston. Yes. And you know, it didn't happen. You know what did happen? He, like, runs down to her after she's almost drowned, and she throws up all the water (laughs) on him. Which I think was my favorite. It's like, I wanted to tweet, like, me waiting for the romance scene (laughs) in King Kong, and then getting this, and then just me, like, dancing outside the theater. And she was... With what little she was given, she was developed as a strong female character. Oh, definitely. She's well, a photographer. She, she's a war photographer. Yeah, she's, you know, an she, gets out, photographer. she gets out there in the thick of things. She stands up to crazy Samuel well, L. Jackson. Gets, she gets to the to the ship to go to the island with them. And one of the scientists turns and sees her and, sa- and is like, is a woman. Like, <laughs> you're a woman. And she's like, I think so. And just kind of like gets on the ship with all these men. Um, so that's great. Well, because then she also had the very subtle, like, the blonde woman's relationship with King Kong in every King Kong movie. And, but yeah, but it was, it was subtle. It was, it was very subtle. I, I, I enjoyed how they did that. Yeah. There was enough there that it is like a callback to the classic story, but but that wasn't this story, you know? Yeah. And, and so it, then it was more that, like an illusion. To, like a criticism, which is sad, but like you get this very subtle, like I think two scenes of them sort of, or of Brie Larson and then them together um, having like a touching moment with Kong. But I didn't think it was enough for uh, Captain Conrad to want to step in front of a gun for Kong at the end when Samuel L. Jackson is trying to kill him. They they immediately, like, get in front of him, like, this crazy guy who is totally capable of just murdering them both. <laughs> and I was kind of well, like, you know. <laughs> well, yeah. Well, let, let's step back a little bit uh, to our discussion about characters. And let's talk about the character of Kong himself. Now, Kong is has always been, in the traditional story, the sympathetic monster yeah i'm doing air quotes yeah and this is something that we discussed in our previous kong podcast that in monster movies and classic monster movies like frankenstein king kong the the monster uh is uh monstrous in some ways but eventually it turns and your sympathies are with the monster and you are upset with the humans that are behaving badly. Now, the 2005 Kong version really took that and ran with it. In in the 2005 King, yeah. King Kong, you got the most you spent the most time with Kong. Mm-hmm. And he was really developed as a character, God, as those much more layered. When she's dancing. She's like doing her yeah. vaudeville routine, and he's Just amused. And you know, yeah. So now in this film, there's a, a step back from that, and it makes sense. Uh, but he's more. I mean, he's developed as a protector. Interestingly, similar to the way Godzilla is developed. But there's not as much of a sense of a of a character there as there is in the 2005 version. But I did like, I felt like in the previous uh, Kongs, he was so much more, like, brutal. Like, it's always, like, a thing of, like, oh, the natives, like, make sacrifices to him. Mm-hmm. 
And in this in this movie, it was like, no, like he takes care of business, like. Oh, and speaking of natives, this is this was definitely the most sympathetic and and um, respectful depiction of a native population on Skull Island. You mean like they were real people and not just like creepy murder machines? Uh, yes, yes. You know, that's one thing that I dislike about Peter Jackson's version. Uh, you know, there there's a tendency in Western films in general that if you're portraying some sort of native population, especially if yeah, they... Yeah, the stereotype of the, of the vicious, yeah, violent... Yeah, yeah. People sacrificing native population. And in this one... They were just like the the chill natives. They I, didn't even speak. They just well, stood I do, around I philosophically. I do wish they had a line though. It's like they could have <laughs> given them like a language and had them said like a few words to be like, yeah, it's cool if they stay here, bro. Like, well, the way I, the way I took it was that they were they were almost like monks. They were just like well, yeah, because then he also subdued. the the World War Two pilot has the the line about how he's like they don't have a, they're past all that. Yeah, yeah, saying like they're more advanced than we are. Which yeah, is nice as opposed to being like I don't know. Yeah, okay, we're leaping all around here because I don't know why because well, that's what we do because their the movie was what it is it was it was thinly plotted, uh, but let's go back again. What is, some of the plot that there was was tied in to Godzilla developing the shared universe. Uh, as the movie starts, we have the uh, John Goodman character as a representative of the monarch group, the secret group that's in charge yeah. of tracking giant monsters, which was introduced in Godzilla. He's trying to get funding or, or something from the government to let him go to this newly discovered island. It's a little confusing because he's being treated like he's a complete crackpot. I mean, Monarch is a secret government organization, but then he's going to, like, his congressman to get... Well, it's like... It was a little like, muddled the way it was developed, I thought, but... It's like in... Uh... In the X-Files, where he's like, technically, it's an official part of mm. the government, whatever, mm -hmm. but nobody likes or cares or respects <laughs> them. Yeah. And, well, and, and, and this was... Stick him in the basement. Yeah, and, and part of the reason why why that worked in this film was when you leap from World War II to the 70s, so now it's been 30 years from the flashback events of Godzilla. Yeah. And so enough time has passed that one can infer that Monarch has fallen out of favor or that more and more, all the people that knew what really happened back when they were trying to nuke Godzilla. <laughs> yeah. Uh, they've, they're, they've forgotten, they've passed on, they've whatever. And so, yeah, so Monarch seems to be scrambling to try to uh, convince people what's really going on. So they, they're able to get together their expedition to the island, uh, and then unfortunately, as it, in the long run, as it turns out, <laughs> their military escort is commanded by Samuel Jackson's character, who is uh, suffering from the disillusionment 
as a gung-ho military commander guy, he's suffering from the delusionment that he's gotten by the end of the Vietnam War and the United States just having to withdraw without any sort of decisive victory. And so he's, like, looking for a win. And so when they start blowing up charges on the island for to map its seismographic etc to quote map it blah blah yeah. blah science words uh, end quote then and and they stir up kong and and kong attacks and kills a bunch of people then suddenly the commander Honestly, goes nuts so little bombs were the worst idea i've ever heard of in my life even for somebody who's, like, trying to stir up a monster, like, find a monster, it's, like, really? You're gonna start blowing stuff up? Like... Well, they they really were also doing seismic stuff because the other scientist character had his theory they, about, like, the hollow yeah, earth and openings into thing. So it, it kind of tied into very, you know... Obviously, it's not the kind of movie where you're looking for perfect science. Oh, no, I just... The second he was like, we're going to drop these things and they're going to blow up. I was like, boy. (laughs) (laughs) Ooh, the scene where one of the soldiers is like washing like the blood off of himself and washing his cuts in the water. And then Kong comes and he gets super afraid and hides. But then Kong is doing the same exact thing Mm -hmm, in the water. mm -hmm. Powerful. That was a nice little scene. and And then he gets some calamari. So the and the. The soldier uh-huh. that saw that, you could tell that it affected him. Yeah, he, he was he was like, like oh. realizing, wait a minute, this is just this. Well, it's also it's also confusing when the monster looks almost exactly like you, but with fur. <laughs> like, but yeah, he you could see that he was that he was reflecting upon that this wasn't just yeah. some sort of killing machine yeah that it was a real creature who's hurt and is and and that was well done i think that they would have been served by having fewer characters it's like they had a this huge number of of characters to begin with just so that there was cannon fodder for kong to kill a bunch of people yeah. and still have enough people left for the movie and I think they could have done that better, especially because when the helicopters of the expedition start taking off from the ship, maybe I was looking at things wrong, but what my perception was like, here's this ship, and it's got three or four helicopters on it. Yeah, they show and like three or four, four helicopters four take helicopters off. Taking off, and then there's like sixteen in the yeah, air. Yeah, and then it cuts to a wide and shot. And then Kong cuts down twenty-four. And there's a gabillion. And then eighty-four people are dead. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's like where there was no room and then on Samuel that. Samuel L. Jackson has to kill eight hundred and forty apes. Uh, yeah. There was yeah, there was no room on that ship for all those helicopters. <laughs> they they just came out of nowhere. Plus, after Kong wipes out all the helicopters. And they come up with the idea that they have to make their way across the island to He wipes the, out the 24 helicopters, to, and then there's still about 30 in the air. Well, so that's the thing. There was actually a line. They say, the Hiddleston character says, we have to go across the island to the exfiltration point or whatever yeah. fancy army yeah. dock. And one of the other characters says 
but how are we going to get off? How you know, Kong destroyed all the helicopters. And someone says, well, they'll notice we're missing and they'll they'll mount some sort of a rescue mission or something. But then as soon as they get there, there's choppers approaching. Maybe they sent more choppers. So I just that was really messed up. It there was some continuity issues there. And I think that what they could have done is if they would have just stuck with having three or four choppers <laughs> and Kong destroys three of them. Maybe you know, maybe only one of them lands successfully, but they you know they wanted to you know they had to turn it up to eleven, and so it's like no, we have to show Kong swatting down because that's the other thing. If you're flying your chopper over a mysterious island and suddenly there's a oh my god, I know hundred foot tall ape, and you see it swat down a couple of choppers. I think maybe you're going to back off yeah. beyond arm's reach yeah. of the giant you're ape. You're going to get out of it. Yeah. You're going to judge this circumference <laughs> and you're going to back up and then you're going to back up some more and then you're going to fly back to freaking Vietnam. Okay. <laughs> but it seemed like they just kept buzzing around him within well, they arm's were also, reach. Like, shooting at him. And. Because in every, it's always like, we must kill this beast immediately. (laughs) There is no backup so we don't die. There is only kill. It was an unconventional encounter. (laughs) They did the best they could under the circumstances. (laughs) Like a lot of these kind of movies, when you really start reflecting upon things, you start noticing all these little glitches and holes. But it was fun while they were watching it. They, I mean, they had I, fun it creatures. Is fun. I would definitely see it again. Fun monsters, fun and creepy monsters. Oh uh, my god, the spider! Fabulous Murdered effects. Me. Creepy, <laughs> like, creepy giant spiders. I really couldn't deal with that. But also, the thing with like that comes back to Kong. Three helicopters take off, and then Kong knocks down eighty-four. The spider has eight legs, and they cut down sixty-four. <laughs> It, I'd have to see it again. Well, here's there was the, a lot of kept, leg chopping. It kept cutting to the the shot into the trees mm-hmm. where you could see the traditional spider body with eight <laughs> clear legs, and then it would cut back to them being like, "Cut the legs!" And then immediately at once, like every one of them, like chopped one down. And I was like, <laughs> "Shouldn't she be falling down by now?" You know, but. It was so cool and creepy. Ooh, the gigantic stick insect. Well, that was fun. And, like, cute. Yes. And then you realize that... And it just lumbered away yep. as soon as it could. Mm-hmm. And so not everything is death, death, kill machine yeah. on Skull Island. But also, you know, it basically... Like the fled. water buffalo, too. Oh, my God, the water buffalo. That was a great bit. Sometimes, just... It's just too good. <laughs> just... Punch me in the face if I could go hang out with a water buffalo of the, that size. Yeah, the size of a stadium. That spends its life in the water. <laughs> like, literally, I I can't. So we've hit on a lot of the high points and low points of the movie. High points being action and just pure visual spectacle. Low points being the almost complete absence of character development. And some of the... Cardboard characters. Here's... here. You can't cast Tom Hiddleston and then not give him anything. They... 
Yeah, they really because didn't. Because I'll come for you. <laughs> they did not take advantage of his star power at all. Well, it's no, like they, they took hired, advantage of his star power. They, hired they didn't him, take advantage of his acting And then they abilities. were like, bulk up. And then they were just like, okay, now stand there and look like you're about to break your shirt sleeves. And, and that was like his job. Yeah. And who is he? It's like, I have no sense of who he's that guy Captain is. Conrad. It's like, yeah, he's Captain Conrad. SAS. <laughs> I've done mysterious things. It's like, okay. I'm just hanging out in Vietnam, beating up guys, playing pool for some yeah. reason. It, or wasn't uh, in Vietnam. Yeah, he was in Vietnam for like no reason. He was just, he. Captain Conrad goes where the action is. We should point out that Captain Conrad is a clear allusion to the author Joseph Conrad, who was the author of Heart of Darkness. You lost me. So there's a classic novel, Heart of Darkness, that was adapted into a little film by the name of Apocalypse Now, a classic Vietnam film, although yeah. the original novel was not in Vietnam. And it's about a guy who, a, an army officer that goes crazy, and someone has to go and uh, take care of him. And there's a travel on a boat on a river through the jungles but Captain Conrad didn't go crazy. Samuel no, Jackson went crazy. No, well, yeah, but Conrad was the name of the author of the original oh, okay. novel. And so then this is a Vietnam movie. It's got a crazy uh, military officer yeah. in it. It does have some travel on a boat, on a river. There's all these elements and motifs that, that they were playing with that didn't really pay off in any sort of deep dramatic sense as as they might have. And and in some cases, I think, just came, it was a little bit easy to just, you know, do the slow-mo helicopter shots and the silhouetted helicopters. and. My favorite elements but, and motifs are Brie Larson shooting a flare into a skull crawler's eye and Tom Hiddleston <laughs> doing anything. <laughs> um, so they, they were making these illusions for a sense of depth, perhaps, that they didn't really earn. Uh, and maybe that's unfair, because really, you have to go into this just looking to see a big old monster action movie, and that's really all it's, it is. But another fun element of it was, speaking of the boat, <laughs> the boat that the, boat was fun. That, the that the World War II uh, veterans had built over the years cobbling together parts of their planes and and other planes that had crashed there. So it's got like big dual fifty caliber cool. guns yeah. from a B seventeen or something and then it, but you can see pieces of his plane and and, and it, that was a fun touch. Um and again, so there you see one of the one of the most entertaining Aspects again comes back to the John C. Riley World War II character, and not any of the actual alleged main characters. I don't think it passes the Bechdel test. Well, the Bechdel test generally refers to if the female characters only talk about yeah. men. That wasn't in here. There wasn't a scene where they were. How are you defining the Bechdel test? Woman or women in a scene without men talking about something that doesn't involve the men. 
Yeah, I don't think we got a scene with the two of them together in any significant sense. But, as mentioned earlier, there is not the forced romance between the characters. There is not the, the forced romance. Both of the women stand up for themselves and their and, and, and don't say anything specialities. about... Yeah, and don't say anything about their relationships in any way. Mm-hmm. So I think it passes the Bechdel test, but that is not to say that it did what it could have done with the female characters. I give it I'll give it like a C. Like solid <laughs> pass. Solid pass, but Hollywood Yeah. Let's let's get going. It was better than than a lot of Hollywood movies, but yeah, I I could have used more. I mean, just as I could have used more with any of the characters. You know, there just wasn't yeah, character development. Yeah, you're right. There really wasn't. Well, that's the other part is that there really wasn't like any. It's not like they developed the male characters and didn't develop the female characters, but yeah, they were all almost all equally undeveloped, except for some exceptions here and there. You know, the the little backstory about Dear Billy. Uh, you know, just just some snippets. Dear Billy, let's start trying to pass the Bechdel test <laughs> with a solid B plus. <laughs> So, Samuel L. Jackson. So he goes revenge crazy, which you can understand to a certain extent. But, to a certain extent. <laughs> but it got ridiculous because it was so obvious the task before him was unachievable because Kong is just so big. <laughs> and they had so little. You know, you, you kind of have to take it with the heart of darkness concept a little bit and... And and tied in with how he was feeling about the end of the war, and he wants a win. He just wants a win. Well, and also, but I got the sense that he, I don't know. he's the type of character who, like, he doesn't really have anything outside of the army. Yeah, yeah. And so, for the war to end so, I don't know, with them just sort of giving up, and then also, like... He had built, like, a family. Yeah, he, you know, it's understandable how a man in his position would be disillusioned by the end of the war. Um, And, you know, in my former day job, I worked on a lot of military history books and dealt with a variety of Vietnam veterans of various ranks, and so I know that because of the way the war played out, that there are a lot of complicated feelings well, that funny. some of these guys have carried you know, around to with have them. To, to have to go through what so many of them did and then have to, you know, just leave. Yeah. Without, yeah, without a sense of victory. And a sense victory. of, yeah, because, because for... Or even a sense of loss, you know, it was just over. For various reasons, because of the the growing peace movement, of course, yeah. a, a lot of these guys felt uh, rejected by their fellow Americans, and they felt, you know, and, and then there was the just withdrawing and the ending of the war without any clear uh, victory and the feeling of loss. And so it, it's understandable that, you know, there's there's a lot of mixed feelings and bad feelings about the situation. Um, but, you know, then another sort of tired trope of cinema is the crazed Vietnam veteran. Is it? And this, uh, yes, and it's, well... I had no idea. But I also, watching this movie, I realized... Because of your age, you you haven't experienced 
uh, the the kind of movies that came out in a certain time period where there well, were I lots also of. I haven't seen very many war movies. Yeah. Well, and then another thing is that apparently jam. I learned I learned nothing from my eleventh grade history course because I don't remember <laughs> learning anything about Vietnam. And then I got I got told that we spent half the year learning about Vietnam, and I have zero I have zero <laughs> memory of it. Uh, <laughs> like, well, none. <laughs> I felt uneducated. <laughs> Not that one really needs to understand all the socio-political ramifications of Vietnam War to uh, go see Call Skong. No. Call Skong, Call Skong Island, I was about to say. Skong! Skull Island. <laughs> Where uh, King Kong was a VC th- sympathizer. That's, <laughs> that's a, uh, if you were 20 years older, you might have found that funny. Maybe. Does VC stand for Viet Cong? Yes. Nailed it. <laughs> so. Shout out to my 11th grade history teacher, <laughs> Matt. So, long Here's story short, I have mixed feelings about what they did with Samuel L. Jackson's character and his relation and, 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 and his uh, adversarial relationship with King Kong. You know, and which they kind of overdid. You know, there there's like this bit where there's a a shot on Kong as he's getting ready to fight, and and his he kind of makes his hands into fists, and and then there's a shot the later. Then there's a sh- a shot later where where uh, Samuel Jackson's hands do the there's same lots thing, of hands, like, and then there's a close on shot of Kong's eyes and a close on shot of of Jackson's eyes and that was you know over the top but here's my problem I feel nothing except for an overwhelming unnamed emotion because of the last scene where the where the World War II veteran comes home (laughs) that's what we always have to come back to (laughs) because it takes a lot for me to have to hold back real tears in a theater (laughs) I can't remember. I think the last time I was holding back real tears is watching the Battle of Five Armies and thinking Peter Jackson has killed everything <laughs> I love. And I'll never see it in a movie theater again. In our uh, crazed and rambling discussion. It was kind of a crazed and rambling movie. I don't know, dude. It kind of. Is there anything. It kind of just snowballed. It wasn't very <laughs> organized, you know? Well, like... I'm, I, well I, in some ways, I think you could make the argument that it was organized because it hit all the same beats that, like, Godzilla did. In some ways, it was kind of like. It was almost like they took Godzilla as a template. And and you know John Goodman was the uh, the analog for the character of the father. It's like you need the guy that's like thought to be crazy, but is chasing after the monsters. And you know, and, and Godzilla so, was so much more complicated, though. But yeah, that's you know the the characters were more developed. Uh, and in the beginning, in the beginning, when you're rooting against Godzilla because he's destroying everything, and then the rising feeling of him having come to protect mm-hmm. and well and from, that's uh the other the kaijus and that's the other element of that king kong seems like this sort of pale copy of godzilla because then in this movie kong is a protector and protects the indigenous population against the other monsters and so in some ways it was like oh 
this seems like they're kind of retreading, but in other ways it's kind of interesting because since we already know that there's going to be a Godzilla versus King Kong, it's kind of interesting because you're wondering, okay, well, what's going to bring them at odds? Godzilla versus King Kong, but then the Demogorgon comes and they have to, they have to <laughs> settle their differences. So let's talk a little bit about the after credit scene. Because we are smart, movie-going, geek, Marvel followers, we know that you do not wa- walk out of the theater. Especially... When it's like a new, because this is you the never start know. of a new thing, and you don't know if they're going to do the Marvel thing you or if never they're not going to do the Marvel thing. Yeah. And in this one, it was tricky because it wasn't a mid-credit sequence. It was a completely at the end. And I found myself confused for a while because I'm, I mean, even before Marvel, I'm a credit watcher. I like to stay through the credits I don't try to read them all word for word because often with special effects films, there's too many names to even try to read all the credits. But I like to just witness, here are the people that have made this piece of art. Yeah. And But I, you know, I, I look at things here and there. And as I was watching the credits, I noticed in the credits that it said Rodan, Mothra, and Ghidorah, copyright, blah, blah, blah. Toho Pictures or whatever. And I was like, well, that's weird. Why did they just... I saw that too. Why did they acknowledge the copyright of three monsters that were not in this movie? Well, the answer soon came to be because then suddenly the post-credit sequence started. And it was both fun and confusing because on the fun level, it was just another... Uh, tie-in with Monarch, tying in to Godzilla, and and really helping to cement that this is a a shared world. And Pretty Boy Hiddleston and uh, Brie Larson (laughs) are being questioned about what they saw on the island, and they're being warned that it's got to be kept secret. And and Honestly, they spent more time on Tom Hiddleston's hair (laughs) than... Any like than Brie Larson's hair. I think they did. And not then, that I'm mad, but yeah. And then here's where it gets confusing, though. But then um, the two other minor scientist characters come in. Yeah. Now, yes, they the survived. Quote, geologists, unquote. Yeah, and and they suddenly both seem much more in the know and in and powerful than what you ever thought yeah. throughout. They, and and so it's like, okay, are we supposed to infer that they were kind of playing the John Goodman character a little bit and they were higher up in Monarch or that they were in cahoots more with the government or what? I don't know, because suddenly they seem very commanding. But then they come out and we get another sort of, uh, you know, exposition dump, but it it worked well in the context. They start showing some, like, cave paintings that were discovered and one of them clearly shows a silhouette of Godzilla. And then we see the silhouettes of the other three monsters. Mothra, Rodan, and me struggling. G- Ghidorah. I think that's called... Ghidorah the Explorer. I've never... <laughs> I've never actually... I don't think I ever saw any of the movies, the Godzilla movies that Ghidorah was in. So I always stumble over the name. I'm not fam- as familiar with it. And we get more sort of backstory about the world and the seismic thing and the hollow earth and the blah, blah, blah. 
but it it really sets up I guess we it's safe to assume that in Godzilla 2, King of the Monsters, or whatever the subtitle's going to be, that he's probably going to be fighting uh, some some of those Godzilla monsters. The Electric Demogorgon Boogaloo, returns. the Demogorgon. <sighs> this time it's personal. Millie Bobby Brown is going to be in that movie. And, uh, oh, that's right. Yeah, she's going to be in Godzilla 2. And then we've got the long wait to uh, King Kong versus Godzilla. But I think it's going to have to be that... Somehow they're, they they get set at odds with each other for a little bit, but then don't you think some bigger problem's going to arise and then they're going to have to team up and fight something else together? Honestly, the only thought in my head right now is Mothra, Rodan, Ghidorah, and then me just screaming at the Great British Baking Show. <laughs> and where does the Great British Baking Show fit into this? That's just... What gives me my power, my monster power? <laughs> Your Patronus is the Great British Baking Show. It's just me. It's like <laughs> Mothra flapping and then like Rodan like screaming or whatever. And then it's like, it's just like me. And I'm just enraged at <laughs> the bakers. <laughs> But it's oh. just—it's just as terrifying and awe-inspiring. That is the. It's just me, like if you think it needs to be proved more, put it back in the drawer. <laughs> okay, so <laughs> kaiju and baking metaphor—I don't know. Uh, you've thrown me. I have a lot of feelings all at once. <laughs> I hope Tom Hiddleston listens to this podcast. <laughs> and then it's just, instead of us being like, oh, yes, Captain Con, yes. It's just me being like, nah, I'm just screaming at Netflix. As previously mentioned, we did that previous podcast on the 33, 76, and Ot 5 editions. Now we have the 17 edition. So of those four Kong films in a cage match, what's your favorite Kong? Honestly, here's the problem, is I just rewatched the 05 Kong not that long ago, mm -hmm. and I would say that's my favorite, but it does not hold up. You don't think so? The script is rough, dude. It's, like, and I was watching it, and I, for some reason, I have such, like, a special place in my heart for it, a special island with monsters on it, <laughs> um, in my heart. Mm-hmm. That I couldn't, I couldn't not just adore it, even with all of the cringy lines. And I was so, I don't know. I think can 05 you, might still be my favorite. Can you throw out an example of a cringy line? Honestly, I can't. Okay. Because I, I watched it recently enough to remember that those are my feelings, but not recently enough to ah, name okay. a line. Because I, uh, I rewatched it recently as well, and uh, I, I still quite enjoy it. I think that in typical Peter Jackson fashion, it does go on a bit. I I I love it but a lot more than I realized before rewatching it because mm -hmm. then I was watching it and I realized I whenever somebody said a line, I was like, "Oh my god, I remember that. how fantastic." But then in my head I was like, "This is a little iffy." Um <laughs> But then I remember being sad because, uh, well, and the other thing is, honestly, I fell asleep in the middle of it and slept until past the end. 
But then I woke up and I was like, I miss when he says it was beauty killed the beast. <laughs> and like, what a bizarre role for Jack Black to play, you know? It's jarring to see Jack Black in a role where he doesn't basically just kick down a door and go, I'm Jack Black! <laughs> like, Yeah, I think he got that character of the kind of kitschy over the top yeah. director oh, definitely. yeah you know because i think one of the things that that film did well was that in some ways it wasn't really trying to portray the 1930s super realistically it was trying to portray the 1930s the way the 1930s portrayed itself in movies <laughs> you know what i mean yeah you know so it's like it's got the like snappy dialogue of movies of the 30s and 40s Look here, see? Where, where everyone's just kind of happy in a strange way even though times are tough and and i think that he got how, how to play that so you got the 1933 it started it all it's a classic it can't be removed from a, a from its iconic place mm -hmm. uh then you have the uh, wildly uneven 1976 version that most people try to forget but has some good elements to it and is certainly better than King Kong Lives that we didn't discuss at length because no one should ever have to see that film. <laughs> then Peter Jackson returns to the beginning. I love that take. Even with its excessive scenes, it's a more richly realized film than Kong Skull Island. But when Godzilla came out, they didn't necessarily know that this is going to work and we're going to make this shared kaiju universe. Yeah. And so as the Kong movie developed and they realized we really need to make this shared universe, like all the weight of creating the shared universe was dumped into Kong. And so some of it's a little forced, like it's trying a little bit too hard to say, hey, this is the same world. Kind of like... Uh, Batman versus Superman had to try too hard to establish an entire DC movie universe or um, out of very little. Was it just to, you know, because they're tr like playing Ultron. catch up. Yeah. Or age of Ultron, mm -hmm. all the movies that take on too much in trying to yeah. make the universe seem big. But of course the strange thing in, in that respect with Kong is that it didn't really have a whole lot to take on and yet still yeah. came out kind of thin. You know, I, Watch but likable, I would definitely rewatch it. I'd, I'd probably want to rewatch it before I see the other movies. Yeah, or or especially you know when we get to the next Kong movie. But as far as the this current crop of, I mean, if you're just looking at Godzilla versus King Kong, as in the movie Godzilla versus the movie Kong Skull Island, to me Godzilla is the better film. Oh, definitely. But you get more upfront giant monster action in skull island yeah so if, and way so more if that's cool what you want too. if that's what you want yeah <laughs> you're gonna get it from from kong because yeah those lizard death skull things the skull crawlers the skull crawlers like they were pretty cool <laughs> they were pretty cool i liked how they just had two legs I, yeah so they were kind of creepy and like and like weaving around and that, i like yeah and i liked how the, it's like they barely seemed to have eyes they were just like these gaping it reminded me of sockets. orcas no because no they had those were just markings they had the white markings on their face and then right behind the marking that looked like an eye it had an actual eye here's yeah. a question do you think we should have had at least one shot of the ants or was it better that it was just a line of dialogue 
I think it was better with just a line of dialogue. It happened so... Honestly, that was the high point of the movie. It happened so quickly. It was one of the scenes... And it happened so... I mean, it just came out of nowhere, and it was, like, honestly the funniest line in the entire movie. Yeah, and, and just another example of how the uh, World War II, how John C. Riley was allowed yeah. to steal yeah. the whole film. He was so <laughs> likable and so funny... Because the thing... I can't even think about it. Well, like, we, I'll think about it and then I just lose it. Well, we didn't discuss earlier when we were discussing his character and how he got <laughs> developed and the other ones didn't was how he, over the 40 years, or the 30 years, I mean to say, that he's been on the island, he's kind of gone around the bend a little bit. <gasps> and I thought... Am I talking out loud or am I thinking? I can't tell. Yeah. You can't tell? <laughs> See, now, I'm talking but your mouth is moving. <laughs> And I thought that Riley really captured, yeah, the just being on the edge of like yeah, I've been I mean, here he's, for a long I mean, time. The, the, I mean, what he's been through is just astonishing, and it's perfectly natural that you would be a little. You but know. he still has he still has a positive mindset. Yeah, somebody, so, a very strong person with a positive mindset. How they would be after that long? Yeah. Yeah, and so to see him kind of rallying when he runs out and he's like, "I put the old flight suit on for you," yeah. just <laughs> me, just dead, having a stroke in the middle of the theater. Okay, final final thoughts. Lots of sunsets. <laughs> I, yeah, it's. I mean, it, it was an entertaining film. Served its purpose in, in the broader scope of things. Lots of sunsets, and then me just clapping by myself whenever Tom Hiddleston or Kong is on screen. <laughs> Kong kills the squid, starts eating it. Woo! Yeah. Okay, this is a new segment, an addendum. First time we've ever done anything like this. Yes. So since we recorded the previous portion of the show ella has seen kong <laughs> two more times for a grand total of three and i've seen it one more time mm -hmm. and so we just wanted to reflect a little on th thoughts that have come to us upon repeated viewings is there anything that you wanted to start out with yeah i do feel like we gave a fair review the movie definitely has problems and i think that we really like zeroed in on them but um coming away from it and now after seeing it two more times i sort of started to feel like uh like at least i or we were ragging on it a little bit and i don't feel <laughs> it's like i saw it three times like i don't i felt like the review that i gave wasn't for a movie that i would have seen two more times in the theater and i i might see it again i slightly disagree because i i, I completely get what you're saying but sometimes, for various reasons, there can be a split between, on the one hand, recognizing problems, and on the other hand, just the enjoyment quality that the, yeah. that the movie brings you. And so, like you said, I think we gave it a fair review, but it's still just such a fun movie for various reasons mm -hmm. that, I, that mm -hmm. even though... And, and in fact, one of the things I want to comment on is... Something that we both wondered about upon first viewing, we've now been able to look at much more closely. One of the weirdest glitches in the movie is the number of helicopters. Shall we talk about that? Because Okay, no, here's the thing, though, is that... Okay, I can't... I have to see it two more times to actually count every single one. The shots are so close, but you see it, and there's... 
the first shot of the ship, there's five small helicopters and then the one big longer yes, one. I don't know what that's called. There's four or five Hueys, the classic Vietnam there's chopper. There's exactly five. Yep, there's five of those. And then there's one of the big uh, two-rotor choppers, yeah. which is a Chinook. A Chinook. Now I have the vocab. So there's six total. But then, <laughs> but then, hold on, because then the back of the, because what we're seeing on the bow and like in the middle, okay, so there's those six. So we have at least six, including the, the Chinook. Mm -hmm. And then on the stern mm -hmm. of the boat, there's another two or three little Huey helicopters. I'm certain of it. I only thought so, there was one more there. I don't know. There's, but but even even if we assume two or three more, that's still not as Dude, many as the they thing. show in the did air. You, did you count all of them? There how was. How many do they actually show? There were at least a dozen. I think as high as fifteen choppers once they were in the air. I don't know, dude. But yeah, the the cuts are very quick. Because we just get we only get one shot of all of the helicopters together, and it's like one second long. And then Samuel L. Jackson launches into that monologue that completely distracts me every time. So once this is out on DVD and Blu-ray... We're going to pause it. There's going to be trouble, because then we're going to get that exact It's just count. like, I'm so... Every time I'm like, okay, I have to count them. And then I hear Samuel L. Jackson go, remember the story of Icarus? And I'm like, <laughs> yes? Like, I just completely phase out. I noticed upon second viewing a, a problem that I didn't notice the first time. They fly over the island. They run into Kong. Hijinks ensue. Crashing, screaming, killing, maiming. And then Tom Huggleston. <laughs> we call him that because I want to hug him. <laughs> they walk for miles through the jungle. Mm -hmm. And then they bump into Marlow, the World War II pilot. And then he takes them, you know, deeper into the uh, secret village where all mm -hmm. the... the Ewees. <laughs> is that what they're called? Yep, they're called Ewees. The Ewees, the villagers, the, yep. the natives, where all the, where, where they live. And when, when they first meet Marlo, Marlo's like, you know, excited and says something about, you know, I couldn't believe it when they told me that you were coming. Mm -hmm. Okay. Mm -hmm. So then they get to the island or the, the place in the river or whatever where the Ewees live. Ewee. Ewees. And then at one point, what's her name? The anti-war photographer. Mason. Weaver. Mason. So Mason hears a weird sound and she goes outside of the giant wall and there is one of the giant water buffaloes pinned under a what helicopter. seems to be one of their helicopters crashed right outside the village. And so then the spatial so relationship. Thinking, you're thinking that he should have been like, I saw the helicopter. I saw and one I of your helicopters crash. Right. But the other thing is that when, when, uh, when I keep, so on, that I was keep weird. wanting to say Brie Larson because I didn't know her character's name for such mm -hmm. a long time, but now I know that it's Mason Weaver. Mason Weaver, uh, Mason Weaver walks outside the wall, uh, cause she hears the noise, but none of the Ewees go outside. They're like, we're not going out there. Um, mm, okay. So, you know, maybe they were like, so, Dude, like, they're coming. And Marla was like, what? Point, but they didn't really take... Because it seems like they're very sketchy about leaving yeah. their village. And then we just... We would then just assume that everyone in that chopper died in the crash. Yeah, or I, I kind of felt like they fell out. And and died. Yeah, probably. Yep. And so that would... Okay, so yeah, they're... That is, uh, that is a relatively believable mm -hmm. explanation for a potential... 
weird glitch in in the storytelling there Mm -hmm. it still seems like they must have been on the way to crashing for a very long time if they could crash outside that village. Lots of the helicopters were, like, flipping around, though, yeah. and, like, going flat. Maybe, you know, Kong could have gone I still, like a yeah. Ball. I, need, I need a map. We need to, we, we need to get okay, it on a map to figure here's out. Here's one other thing that is bothering me, and maybe this is just, like, an army thing, but I don't understand. The helicopters crash in different spots, and they get on these radios and start talking about where they are. It's like... But I don't understand how they know where each other is, and especially that one guy, the dear, the dear Billy guy. I don't remember his name. He, they have to go find Chapman. him. Chapman. He's like way off in the middle of nowhere, and he's just like, well, I'm four clicks, whatever, whatever. And then Samuel L. Jackson is like, top of the highest mountain. I gotcha. And it's like, do you? Is because you're in the army, you just know that you're four miles west and one mile east. I do not understand. Yeah, that was they were a little breezy with some of the uh, things there. Things just went by fast, yeah. and I don't yeah. Any, but I don't care. But but again, <laughs> I was a little concerned seeing it the second time in uh, pretty close proximity. Mm-hmm. That since there were some of these holes and weaknesses that we discussed. Uh, earlier in the show, that they would stand out more to me. And a couple of them did stand out more, but they did not detract from my yeah. viewing pleasure well, at here's, all. Well, here's what we should also say. In the in the spirit of being truthful, we didn't actually pay to see it more times than just the one because my boyfriend won tickets on the radio. <laughs> so, so that was nice. So, yeah, so I saw it another time with him, and then I saw it once again with you, so, One but I'm probably going to pay to see it. I had a follow-up to something you mentioned earlier in the show, when something I was confused about on the skull crawlers. I was like, it's like they don't even have eyes. They just have these dark, like, sockets. No, they're like and, orcas. And, and you said, no, those they're are just like, markings. Yeah. There's eyes there. Yeah. Well, then I kept a close watch on the second viewing Mm -hmm. and and sure enough there were eyes so Mm -hmm. that was fun Mm -hmm. one thing that needs to be emphasized i think upon reviewing uh that is that it's definite how much john c Riley as marlo just steals the entire movie oh absolutely 100 (laughs) percent. you mentioned chapman Mm -hmm. the uh who played one of the more sympathetic and developed uh soldiers in the crew because uh, he's trying to write a letter home to his son, and then he eventually gets killed. Well, he's writing the letter because he was supposed to be home, like, yeah. 12 hours ago. And then and they like, went off on this Dear other Billy, thing. I'm in the army, and sometimes stuff happens. So, Toby Cabell is the name of the guy who played Chapman. Mm-hmm. And this is very interesting, particularly because there's that great scene between him and Kong that you mentioned earlier in the show how he's washing off his blood and then Kong comes in and is also like washing off his blood and And it's this interesting moment moment where he's like oh like Kong he's just doing the same thing I am and there's like a moment where Kong even like looks at his hand and is like ah and it's clear that his hand is all sliced up from grabbing the helicopter blade and just like oh well that guy get this Mm did some of the motion capture performance for Kong. That's so crazy. But wait, there's more. The same guy also did the motion capture performance for Koba in Dawn of the Planet of the Apes. Koba, the evil Koba. The e- yeah, the, yeah. <laughs> Semi-evil. Semi-evil. The Sem- still understandably, semi-rational, but yeah. also murdered an ape child. So Then, I mentioned that Toby did some of the motion capture for uh-huh. Kong in Skull yeah. Island. 
The other guy who did some of the motion capture is named Terry Notary, and he played Rocket in all three of oh the Apes God. reboot movies. So he will will yet we're yet to see him in the upcoming War for the Planet I, of the Apes. Where do I get into the motion capture industry? Honestly, <laughs> that seems like the one of the most lit jobs in the film industry. Like here, just put on this green suit and walk around like a freaking it's so gorilla. Cool. And and it was you know it was practically invented by um, Andy Circus. <laughs> Andy Circus, whose name I blanked on for a second there. I mean you know because he kind of took it over. Andy Circus in Lord of the Rings playing Smeagol and then slash pl- Gollum. Yeah, and then playing Kong. Kills me. Kills in... me how he created this entire industry. He practically did. I mean he. For a while it was all it was all any motion capture always Andy Circus. Yeah, well he any was. At all. He had the luck of playing the first major character. Uh, when the technology got to the point where it was really, you know, believable. And, well, and, and Smeagol looked really good for 2001, yeah. let's be real. And so then the, yeah, so he was in the right place at the right time for that performance and then just really uh, took it over and and, every, and opened the door, both yeah, his performance yeah. and the technology. You know, they reached a point where it opened the door to like, we can really do this on bigger scales and, and make amazing things like, the reboot movies of the And it's apes. such an effective way of making CGI look so much more real. When you have those natural movements to place yeah. it on, it's so good. Anyways, we got distracted. And the other thing, uh, one other thing that I noticed upon the review that I missed in the first one, is that the same actor played young Marlowe in the World War II crash sequence. Mm-hmm. Oh, that, yeah, yeah, yeah. that played Marlo's son at the end of the movie when Marlo gets home and yeah. sees the son that he had never been able to see before, who was born after he went off to war. So that was really cool. Um, Cue me holding back tears in the theater three times in a row. <laughs> it's a marvelous scene. So there, we just we we just quickly ran through a lot of the stuff that we really noticed upon repeated viewings. But was there anything, I mean, you've seen it one more time than I have. Was there anything that really grabbed you in those three viewings? I'm just really impressed with the way that that movie sort of washes over you. (laughs) And you sort of have to see it, but it just happens. And there's all, the cinematography is gorgeous. The camera work is amazing. And it just, I don't know. I mean looking past the character development problems mm-hmm. it's just every shot is so good and almost every line is so good and perfect and just the i, I don't even know what to say about it but <laughs> i just and the first time we saw it and part of the reason why i wanted to go back and do another segment about it is because we saw it the first time and i was like oh that was fun it was fun seeing tom hiddleston it was so fun having another kong movie but then it Literally, I'm going to be very dramatic about this, but it started just, like, encompassing my thoughts. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm just like, oh, well, that was a cool movie, like, whatever. But I kept thinking about it, and I kept thinking about it, and it was just like my brain was just like, uh, like, just like a sunset over Skull Island for, like, three days. <laughs> and then I started listening to the soundtrack on Spotify every day on my way to class mm-hmm. and back to my dorm every day listening to the passenger and CC rider and brother just like cruising down the street <laughs> with like a bandana on my head, just like feeling it. <laughs> I have, I have one more thing I want to do. Okay. I want to do a very quick, like highlights of 
Skull Island. Okay. Okay. So I want number one, um, when Samuel L. Jackson goes, Cold Rolled Pennsylvania Steel. <laughs> That's one mm-hmm. right there. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, number two. Um, no one could have delivered that like Samuel L. Jackson. Nope. nope. You know. Um, number two. Um, the the like this the stick plant that looks like a giant more like a giant log mm-hmm. and the sound that it makes mm-hmm. when Chapman shoots at it and he's like like ah why would you do that to me and then he like kind of walks away when what's his name yells cut off its legs cut it off at the legs when there's that giant spider mm-hmm. okay mm-hmm. um when that same guy says that was an un- <laughs> unconventional encounter <laughs> um when at the beginning, when you think that um, the other soldier is talking about a girlfriend at home, but he's talking about his mom, mm-hmm. and then make fun of him for having a bad mom. Um, oh, God. <laughs> I thought this was going to be less than this. You're just listing everything Every, in the movie. I know. I'm just going to keep, I'm just going to list everything out of order. Um, every single See every single time John CC what John CC Riley John C Riley John CC Ryder Riley opens his freaking mouth. Okay, every time he looks at every time he blinks. Stole um, the movie. Yep. <laughs> Let's see. Ooh, at the end after uh, Mason almost drowns and then she wakes up and just throws up on Captain Conrad. Um. Oh, I don't know. That might be all the all the best of hits. Oh. When Randa is trying to use his camera in the um, Skullcrawler territory and the flash breaks and just keeps going off and keeps going off and he gets this look in his face like, oh no, because he knows that he's about to get eaten and Mm -hmm. then he gets eaten. Ooh, when the Skullcrawler vomits up Chapman's skull and dog tags and Captain Conrad is like, dude, we're all gonna die and the kid we're trying to save is already dead. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. I'm going downhill. I, the highlights are going downhill. They're not as highlighted. And I'm gonna buy it on DVD. Dear Billy, go see this movie. <laughs> okay, we are going addendum crazy in this podcast. <laughs> this is addendum part dose because in the in the long wait that we've had while working on this, first we saw the movie again. <laughs> and now, since recording that addendum, Ella has read the novelization. Let's be real, the... I read it immediately after. Like, <laughs> I like I think I bought it, like, the second I knew that it was, like, out there. Like, I went to Barnes & Noble and I bought it. Because I had to have it. And I haven't read it, so I'm just gonna listen to what you have to say. Yeah. Uh, we should, well, well it was, is... Written by Tim Lebin, mm-hmm. who uh, has also written some books in the Alien universe and uh, other things. Uh, but uh, so, what did you think? Yeah, well, uh, first of all, spoiler warning, obviously, because I'm just, I'm not going to hold back. Um, <laughs> as I, <laughs> I haven't held back this entire episode, I'm not going to start now. Basically, if you liked the movie um, enough to want more from it... The you should read the book. The I mean, like, I could have gone for so much more, just like media about Skull Island. Like, I I'm just really into it. I still can't figure out quite why, other than it's just like awesome. But 
So um, did he fill in some of the gaps of character development and stuff that we talked about that we thought was missing from the film? Completely. Well, and one of my biggest problems was that um, they have Captain Conrad there, and he's just kind of like, yeah, I'm just, like, around, wait, you know, <laughs> playing pool. But um, they they talk so much about, like, like his past and um, his time in the British Special, the special Services. I don't know what it's called. And they really focus in on why he is so determined to get all of the civilians off the island alive, which mm -hmm. obviously, I mean, he has the, obviously that's his job there, but I think when you're watching the movie, you can tell that he's sort of, like, fixated on that. And um, in the book, it's because uh, his last mission, when he was an actual captain, was to, like, withdraw the daughter of, like, some... I don't know, high up British, you know, whatever. Mm -hmm. uh, she had been like captured. Um, she was like an illegitimate daughter, quote unquote. She was she was taken hostage, so they were in like the Middle East. And then while they're taking her out, they get her out, and they're like, okay, the girl's safe. And then right when they think the mission's over and they're leaving, um, all of a sudden they're like under fire. And afterwards, Conrad realizes that the girl was shot in the head. And not only was she shot in the head, she was shot in the head with a sniper rifle. To him, it was, like, immediately obvious that somebody wanted her dead, like the seven-year-old yeah. girl, because she was an illegitimate daughter and all that stuff. And obviously, it really upsets him. I thought all that was really interesting. It was really nice to get more of, like, an insight into his career and how he was, like, the best of the best, and then how he sort of, like, fell out of that yeah. career path. Yeah, that's the kind of backstory that one would have really liked to have seen in the film. Yeah, because yeah. then, um, like, later on in the book, he's, like, sort of, have, he, like, he thinks about her. It's, yeah. like, this recurring thing where even before he went to Skull Island, he thought about her a lot. And so he's on Skull Island, and he's still thinking about her. And it's, I mean, they, it could have been really effective, because it could have done the, like, you know, like, war veteran PTSD, like, flashback thing. Yeah. And it could have been, like, really effective, but they didn't. Another thing that we really both missed in the film uh, are there scenes uh, back during the war with Marlowe and Gunpei after they're both on the island. Yeah, I mean, it's not really clear if it's still, if um, World War II is still, like, happening, obviously, because yeah. nobody ever else ever comes to the island. But, um, yeah, there's more scenes. They tell you how Gunpei died, which... I'm not going to say because <laughs> it's really, really emotional and I think everyone should read the book and experience it for themselves. But there you go. it's really, really sad. They talk about, yeah, they definitely talk about um, Marlo and Gunpei's relationship more and their relationship with the villagers. Um, my friends, because I don't really have any real nerdy friends, they think it's weird to read a novelization. Like, it's always like, why? But you already saw the movie. But the thing about um, novelizations compared to movies is... um. Well, for one, the author gets a little bit of wiggle room. Um, yeah. But, like, number two, just the difference in the type of, like, media between books and movies and the way that it's... The, the way that you experience it. Like, in books, you're seeing things from the characters' points of view. Yep. Like, because you're in their head and you're, like, hearing their thoughts. And in movies, you just, like, see their reactions on the outside. Yeah, it's a whole different and experience. So, yeah. It can really... Completely. Yeah. And so reading a novelization can make a movie, like, so much more deep just because you know what each of the characters is thinking in every moment. And 
in the movie, I mean, especially in this movie, Conrad seems very, like, casual the whole time. Like, it's sort of intense, but he is definitely just focused and he's a soldier and he knows what he's doing. But in the book, he's freaking out all the time. Because, like, their helicopters are knocked down by this giant ape. Like, it's nothing that he's ever seen before. He's not really trained for this. He's mm -hmm. trained for, you know, like, jungle survival and whatever. But he's not trained to, like, save people from sea monsters and all this stuff. And there's also, I swear, they added a couple extra scenes and, like, tweaked um, a couple of the battles a little bit. Like, there's a scene where they're on the boat where, um, like, something with tentacles... Um, grabs one of the soldiers and is like pulling him towards the edge mm -hmm. and then they all they're all like freaking out at the same time and then ends up being like um the female geologist who like all of a sudden has like marlo's gunpei's sword and like mm -hmm. chops it oh, off nice and yeah um the thing that some people don't realize uh like your friends who aren't as familiar with uh, novelizations is that the writer is often working from an early screenplay, there may yeah. be lots of changes made. There may be scenes added and cut to the script after the writer gets it. The writer is also given a certain amount of leeway to add stuff to the story as he or she sees fit because a lot of movies, uh, if you just told only the story that's in the script, it wouldn't be very long. And so yeah. they tend to flesh things out uh, to make it a standard book length. And some of that just comes in the natural uh, storytelling, as you were mentioning earlier, because they're adding all these internal thoughts yeah. that aren't in a film. But then sometimes they plug up little holes in the plot or little problems that mm -hmm. they come across. Yeah, yeah, they fix <laughs> the plot holes that you hate. Yeah. And, like, I mean, every, like, any scene could be completely different. Like, um, at the beginning when the soldiers first get to the to the coast or wherever they're i think they're still in vietnam when they're about to leave for skull island mm -hmm. and they get there and one of them is like i should have been in key west by now man not going yeah. to another island and they have this thing where it's like vietnam's not an island idiot like and then, <laughs> and then he says like key west isn't an island either it's a key <laughs> like and it's like this funny thing and in the movie it's like really funny because they're just like sort of bantering and then he's mm -hmm. like you're not funny cole um but in the book um that's only a passing line that Conrad catches while he's, like, on his way to the boat. Mm -hmm. And so, to him, it's just, like, two soldiers, like, and he's kind of, like, okay. And it, like, it's just, like, that entire thing is, like, almost cut out except for just those, like, two lines. And then you just keep following Conrad. Yeah. And, I don't know. It was it was just really, really nice. And I read it a lot, like, while, like, walking to the bus, like, on my way to work and stuff. Or, like laying in the hammock in the backyard, and it has, like, the exact same feeling that the movie has. Mm -hmm. I don't even know how to describe it. It's just, like, I don't know. You're back on Skull Island. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder if they, uh, comparably to what they did, to what the author did with Conrad, if they fleshed out uh, uh, Mason, the photographer, her backstory, and also, two-part question, what about, no, I've forgotten his name, the uh, Samuel L. Jackson character. Did they make him any more believable or complex than just angry, shouting army guy? So. Yeah. Okay, well, let's start with Weaver. All so, right. in the, what's funny is there's a lot of, like, people will, some like, somebody will say something to her, and her reply is just, like, to take a picture of them. <laughs> like, she's very, like... 
I don't know, a lot of it is from Conrad's perspective, obviously, so he, it's a lot of how he is viewing her, mm -hmm. and how he is seeing her interact with the world in a different way than everyone else, because she's constantly behind her camera. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, she, there's a, there's some scenes with her where she's, like, sort of thinking, and she thinks about, like, some other, like, pictures she took in, um, Vietnam, but it's mainly centered around her photography. They really, okay. that's mostly what they added, I feel like, in the okay. book. Otherwise, she was pretty much the same, but they definitely made her more of, like, an artist. And what about um, angry, he, shouting, crazy army guy? He's, I mean, he's still pretty much crazy. <laughs> I mean, because he, he's angry. Like, he's... He's such a complicated character because he's so, like, attached to the army, and so when the U.S., like, pulled out of Vietnam, and everyone's like, oh, we lost the war, and he's like, uh, it, no, like, we didn't lose, mm. so I don't know, I mean, obviously, like, you hear his thoughts, and so, I mean, it's, it seems a little bit more rational, but a mm -hmm. little bit more rational, just because, um, <laughs> like, you're seeing his emotions progress with yeah. every event, Yeah, because it's like oh, like, this end to, like, a war that he wanted to finish in what he thought was the right way, and then, um, oh, but we get to go on another mission, so I don't have to leave right away, and then that mission being crazy, and then his, his, you know, his guys dying, like, yeah. the soldiers yeah. under his command, and so, yeah, I don't know, he's still... <laughs> so, so overall, it seems, obviously, you quite enjoy the novel, and it's a really nice companion to the film, because it fleshes out, uh, some of the, uh, thin spots in the movie, and yet captures the uh, overall feel of the film. Yeah, definitely. Was there uh, any other comments that you wanted to uh, make about the book, other than people should read it if they if they love the movie? <laughs> people, people should read it if they love the movie. I don't know, there's a lot of really like subtle plot differences that I could talk about, but I'm not going to just because, you know, I yeah, can talk yeah. forever. Um, I would be more excited, but it's way too hot here right now, so I'm not as hyper as I was when we recorded the first couple <laughs> parts of the episode. I just want to lie down. <laughs> That's all the time we have for this episode. Tune in next time for episode 43, They Aren't What We Thought They Were, the first episode of our multi-part alien retrospective as we discuss the prequel films Prometheus and Alien Covenant. Remember that Generations Geek is a part of the Chronic Rift Network, which broadcasts from space where no one can hear you scream. Please give their other fine podcasts a listen at chronicrift.com. Thanks for listening, and come, come back, back next, next time. time. No geeks were harmed in the making of this podcast. Ooh, shiny. <laughs>